The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing to look in Genesis at the ending portion, about 14 or 15 chapters in all, that cover the life of God's servant, Joseph, the son of Jacob. If I was really comprehensively exploring every part of this, I'd be at it another six or eight weeks, I think, for sure. But that was never my design. And today I have really kind of a difficult assignment in that I'm bringing you things that have happened in both chapters uh, 43 and 44. And if I was to read those entire chapters, that's about all I would get to do. So you can see I've broken it up. I'm reading you four portions. This is kind of unprecedented to do this with so much text, but I'm giving it the old college try. So you hang in with me. You might want to keep your Bible open this morning and and, uh, just scan the parts that I don't read as I'm speaking to fill in some things with the story. Remember Joseph now has seen his brothers come to Egypt. He's given them grain. They went home. Joseph kept Simeon as a captive to have them prove something. I was marking with the words that Mark was just singing for us that caught my eye that could have been words that either Joseph or his brothers could have said, if this has been a test, I cannot see the reason. But maybe knowing I don't know is part of getting through it. Those are very human and true words that apply to what was going on here in our scripture. So listen as I read, starting first in Genesis 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, And when they had eaten the grain that they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that's Jacob, said... Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him, and if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed so long, we would would now have already returned twice. Judah got in a little bit of a scold there at the end. Let's see. I want to read a little more there. I'm sorry. Then their father Israel said to them, 
If this must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So we're going to jump now to verse 26. They have gone down to the land. They've been received. Uh, They've been told that that they're to have a dinner, noonday dinner with Joseph, and they're preparing for that. And Joseph now comes back to his home to have dinner with them. Verse 26, Joseph came home and they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well, he's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Now I go into chapter 44, skipping another portion here. And Joseph is going to put his brothers to the test. They've been sent back. Again, their money is in every sack, and this time Joseph's own silver cup is in one of the sacks, the sack of Benjamin. Joseph is working out a test here. Listen to beginning at verse 12. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. And then I'll go once more down to verse 30. I hope you're keeping the thread of what is being said here. It's still uh, Judah speaking. The fourth, this is brother number four, Judah. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of our servant, your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. 
For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That's a lengthy passage, but may God bring home its cardinal points to us today as we consider it. Most of you adults who are middle-aged or more probably know something, maybe quite a bit, about the life of the late Chuck Colson, servant of God who passed away six years ago. You stretch your memory back into the 1970s, and we remember that Chuck Colson was a key individual on the staff of President Richard Nixon. He was in charge of carrying out various things in electoral politics and working against the opposition party so that he became known as the boss of what were called dirty tricks. As a former Marine, he was a tough guy. He was an attorney. And it was said about Colson that uh, he would not hesitate to run over his own grandmother if it was to do the president's bidding. Tough guy involved in hard things. Well, you probably remember that Colson was tried for his part in the Watergate issues. And uh, about the time of the trial, I'm not sure of the timing exactly, but near the time of the trial, before he was sent to prison, Colson had a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ. Through a wealthy friend who witnessed to him, he was leaving that friend's house, backing his car out the driveway, and God just completely took hold of him. He stopped the car and wept and gave his life to Christ. Well, there were people that greeted the, the news of Colson's Christian conversion with hoots and hollers. The press largely said, oh, ha, Colson, jailhouse religion, Colson's got religion. What a laugh, thinking he was doing this to somehow get sympathy with people. But the many months and years that accumulated for Chuck demonstrated that God had truly done a work in his life, and he was a totally changed man. He spent the rest of his life in prison ministry and humble service to other people. And he wrote this among many things that he produced with his pen. Colson said, It is not my successes from earlier life that have enabled me to be useful to God in my work with prisoners and other people. He said, All my gaudy achievements in my resume meant nothing in God's eye. The primary legacy of my life comes out of my greatest failure from the fact that I am an ex-convict My great humiliation of being sent to prison was the beginning of God making some real use of my life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a changed life. Last time, we saw Joseph, the exalted number two ruler of all of Egypt, who certainly has a changed life of a different kind, and yet spiritually changed as well as positionally and politically. We saw Joseph meeting his ten stepbrothers some 20 years after they had beat him up, stripped him, sold him to the slave traders, and abandoned him, and then carried out for two decades 
a seamless story. They never cracked in telling Jacob the story that, that Joseph could actually be alive because they sold him. Jacob still thought that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, which they freely allowed him to believe. Imagine carrying out a fraud like that against your parent for 20 years. Well, when the brothers first came to Egypt, they didn't recognize Joseph. They didn't know who they were dealing with. But we read that Joseph knew who they were, all right. And he knew the number of them, ten. And he knew that there was one not there, his own blood brother, son of Rachel. They were the two sons of Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob. And Joseph had gone through this rather rough handling of them, which I said last time, you might easily conclude that this was Joseph getting even. You guys roughed me up and betrayed me. I'm going to treat you the same way. Well, it could easily look like that, but there was more to it than that. I believe God was directing Joseph's treatment of his brothers to test them, to lead them through a spiritual obstacle course to where God could actually go to work on their souls and and their minds. And so you know he had them leave one brother, Simeon, there as a hostage and said, come back again, but you'll prove that you're honest men if you bring Benjamin, the youngest, with you. Well, Jacob didn't want to let Benjamin go. It seemed like he was quite willing to let Simeon sit and rot in jail, but uh, Benjamin wasn't going to leave home as far as Jacob. Well, Jacob then, we read today, is where we need more grain. Come on, guys, go get it. Well, Father, if we go get it, we have to take Benjamin. The man won't deal with us any other way. And finally, Jacob just basically says, all right, you're killing me here. You might as well kill me completely. You've already taken Joseph. Take Benjamin too. And then Judah, number four son, makes his pledge to his father that he will have charge and he will bring, at the cost of his own life, he will bring Benjamin back to Jacob. Well, we take this up. I said it is a large piece of Scripture, but I'm trying to deal with it seamlessly if I can today. And uh, I have less time to preach because I spent so much time reading. But uh, first of all, I want to show you God's forgiving grace here to guilty sinners. God's forgiving grace to guilty sinners. Yes, Joseph was being harsh. Guess what? The law of God can be harsh. And that's what we see demonstrated here. Many of the commentators say, look, as a paradigm of how God works in people's lives, Joseph knew that you have to experience the law of God to know where you've gone wrong and be convicted about things before you can know the grace of God. And so Joseph is the harsh arm of the law here for them to meet consequences that would hopefully help uh, probe them and open them up as in the manner of Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament when Paul writes to say that the law is our schoolmaster, our tutor, to lead us to Christ. Many have used the image of a plow, a farmer's plow, and have said the law of God is like the plow that is applied. The animal pulls the plow along and the point of it, and the steel plow opens up the sod, the frozen sod in March when you're just ready to get the land prepared and opens the land for seed to be put in where it can grow. The seed is, of course, the grace of God. Romans 10 says Christ is the end of the law, the goal, 
that the law is is striving to reach, that there might be righteousness for those who believe. You could say it in summary that God causes his law to knock us down so that grace can raise us up. That's how the law of God works. If you have a religion that's all law, then you're always going to be knocked down all the time. You'll feel guilty. You'll have no escape from the consciousness of your own sin. But if you have a balance, we read from the Shorter Catechism today, how does, what must a person do who's aware of their sin? Well, they must believe in Christ, faith, and they must repent in a true way. Law, those two things go together. Well, Genesis 43:15 bears witness to the effects that the law had on the sons of Jacob. They come down to Egypt this time. They're kind of trembling in their sandals as they head out. They all brought money. I didn't read the little part that says uh, they brought a lot of extra gifts, 43, uh, 43, 11 and 12. They take honey and gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds, all the best things that they could offer, a little bribe, you know, the money that we owe them from the last time that we found in our sacks because we essentially got our grain free before, and a nice little bribe. Surely we'll sweeten this guy up, hopefully, and and he won't kill us because he could do it. So they kind of tiptoe back to the vicinity of where you meet with Joseph, and they deal, it appears, with his steward, who is ready to meet them and say to them that Joseph wants them to come and have lunch, uh, come and eat. And uh, the men were afraid. It says they're afraid to be brought to Joseph's house, that he may come and assault us and make us his servants and seize our donkeys. So they're on edge, you know. Their hands are ready to reach for the hilt of their daggers, I guess, if, if they get there and find themselves under Egyptian attack. But the fascinating thing to me is this feast is being prepared for there in verse or chapter 43, about the middle of the chapter. Um, they, they tell the man, we have our money, we want to pay it back, we don't know how it got there. And the man, surely Joseph told the man to say this, 43, 23. It's all right, don't be afraid. Interesting what he says. Your God, the God of your father, has given you back your money. Well, he knew that Egyptians put the money in the bag. But here's a, here's a Gentile, a pagan man. This is a, a tremendous irony here. A pagan Egyptian who knows not the God of Israel is telling what Joseph has told him to tell, that your God has done this. The Hebrew is being taught his own theology by the pagan. Your God is doing this thing. I don't know whether they heard him or not, but they must have because we've got this in the text. These men had probably never thought much about God before. They didn't see God as the causative agent behind these things. They thought that they could buy their way with bribes or paybacks or something, that if they just, you know, dealt enough in the law, they had a religion of the law. God does something tough. Well, you try to pay God back and get him on your side. Grace can be confusing, can it? When you encounter things that you know you didn't deserve, grace can be mightily confusing. Well, besides God's forgiving grace to guilty sinners seen here, we go into it deeper in the second place as these two chapters together uh, exhibit for us emerging evidence of real 
repentance. Now, this comes mostly through the one individual, Judah. To a lesser extent, the other brothers, but Judah was the one who really shows this. We could go all the way back from previous weeks to chapter 37 when they first confronted Joseph and threw him in the pit and took his robe and everything. Judah was the one back there who convinced them not to kill Joseph, but to sell him. I mean, he wasn't exactly kind. He, he, he's the one that introduced the idea of slavery for Joseph, but at least he wanted to spare Joseph's life. And then in 43, 9 and 10, we, we see here, before leaving home this second time, Judah came to his father, Jacob, with a personal pledge. I will be responsible, father, for the boy, Benjamin. By the way, editorial note, Benjamin, in calling him the boy, was merely what older brothers called him. He was probably in his 30s, if we put this together right. These men were in their 40s or more. So he's not a little kid, but he was the youngest brother. He was the runt of the family as far as they were concerned. I will be responsible, Father. I know how you value Benjamin. If he doesn't come back, you can take my life because it'll be my responsibility. That's quite a thing to put yourself on the line like that. And then when the silver cup is discovered, not accidentally so, in Benjamin's sack, Joseph saw to that. He comes to Joseph, and he's ready to make another plea, 44, 18 and following. And he says to Joseph, make me your slave instead of the boy because I cannot go back to my father if he is not with me. I cannot bear what the misery would be that would come upon my father. Do you see how God has changed Judah at least? And we don't have so much of what was going on in the other nine brothers, but in Judah at least, the Lord has been at work. This is a changed man, a man who recognized the pain of what he had done and was deeply sorrowful and ready, if he had to, to pay for the crimes that he had brought against Joseph earlier, because it was really that crime against Joseph that all these folks were feeling sorry for. In fact, it's that crime of Joseph. If you look at verse 16 of 44, when the brothers, uh, it's probably Judah speaking, but the brothers seem to be jointly agreeing on this. What can we say to my Lord? How can we prove our innocence? And this statement, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. What guilt was that? I think every commentator I would read says it's the 20-year-old guilt about Joseph that's bubbled to the surface. It's like a, a boil that has been lanced and has let its poison loose now, and they're realizing God is dealing with them on this 20-year-old crime. It wasn't all about a silver cup. It was about their brother that they had sold and callously disregarded and had no notion at all that that was him standing right there in front of them. But finally, they had a godly fear that was at least the beginning stages of true repentance. And Judah's was better than that. Well, the third element here today and the final thing today that needs our attention is for me to draw your notice to the tears of Joseph the reconciler. Joseph's in power he could control and do just about anything he wanted to there. I, I assume he could have lifted his hands and spoken to servants and said, take all ten of these guys out and kill them. 
and nobody would have questioned it one minute. He had that kind of power. But as you read this narrative, you don't get the picture of a stoic, strong uh, ruler who is a tyrant, who is taking his authority and abusing it. You don't get that at all. You get a man who saw his family, and he loved his family. The forgiveness of God had done a work in him already years ago. And Joseph, in his acts of mercy, he was working this test of his family to see what they were made of, could hardly control his deep feelings. Take a look at 42.24, at 43.30, and ahead at 45.2, and you'll see Joseph weeping, copiously weeping. I wonder if he, you know, we see pictures from ancient Egypt, and I can't tell you physically what Joseph looked like, but we see pictures of ancient pharaohs and uh, hieroglyphics that are drawing that, that where they have makeup and heavy eye makeup and everything. I don't know whether Joseph had that. Boy, if, if he indulged the mascara too much, I bet it was running all over the place. You ladies know about that. Maintaining his mask of stern discipline as he spoke to his brothers was of utmost difficulty. Joseph was losing it, especially when he saw Benjamin, his full brother, born of the same mother, Rachel. Joseph was moved uncontrollably, and the text says he had to go into a private room where the others couldn't hear him, but apparently his servants heard him sobbing and wailing through the closed door. Doesn't this tell us something about what it costs to be an agent of divine grace and reconciliation, a great affection towards those whom you're rescuing by grace? We know that Joseph was a symbol of Jesus Christ, and he is here as nowhere else quite as well, I think. I think about the Son of God in the first century in the city of Jerusalem. You remember a well-known passage, both Matthew and Luke tell it. It's Matthew 23 has it. When Jesus is looking out around Jerusalem and crying out collectively to its people and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, How often have I wept for you that I might gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. And Joseph is showing us the heart of the one who would be the gracious redeemer here in this scene long ago in Egypt in his own house. Often I think people have a concept of God and his salvation, and if they think of it at all, they think of God as a cold, wrathful parent, unemotionally moving men and women around like chess pieces on the board and not particularly caring about what happens to the lives of men and women. Well, that image doesn't fit Christ as a redeemer and a reconciler who is bursting with love. For those who have not yet recognized his costly actions and what he has done and will do for them. Joseph, hardly able to contain his tears, is the figure of Christ here. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus Christ overflows with love and compassion 
for you no matter what your background? Are any of you, at least in your written resume, as bad off as these ten brothers? Have you done the kinds of things? Remember, they, they had all kinds of crimes on their list. Two of them had gone and attacked a, a village of Shechemites, and they thought they were avenging a, a wrong against their sister. They wiped out the whole village while people were sleeping. These were nasty dudes, let me tell you. They were not nice guys. And Joseph was bursting with love for them. He wanted to be reconciled to them. He wailed with his tears on their behalf. He wasn't thinking of them as, well, I'll just negotiate with them or see if I can strike a deal with them or something. No, they were helpless people who needed to be saved. I think of the experience of Moses. Our associates are going to be preaching from Exodus soon and even starting tonight. Moses in Exodus 32 came down from Mount Sinai with the law of God, and you remember in his absence, the people hadn't exactly been having prayer meetings. They, in fact, had built a golden calf and were dancing around it as an idol of their old ways. Moses, of course, came and destroyed that and was terrified on behalf of the people, and he went before the Lord. And Joseph in Exodus 32 prays before the Lord and says, O Lord, what a great sin this people has committed. Lord, please forgive them, but if not, blot me out of the book of life that you have written. Moses was the Savior, humanly speaking, of Israel there. He was ready to to be killed if God would kill him as the intercessor for Israel, but God didn't require that. Judah was willing to be killed or taken a slave as the intercessor for his brother Benjamin, but God didn't require that. Jesus Christ was willing to be killed as the intercessor for you and for me who he loved with a deep love. And God did require that and accepted that. Do you understand that? Do you understand that the heart of Joseph bursting here with love for his brethren was just a token and symbol of the love of Christ for us? We are like Benjamin, the brother caught with a stolen cup, and we are guilty. Benjamin wasn't guilty. The cup was planted there. We are guilty. And saving grace longs, even yearns, to welcome us back. I began this morning by mentioning Chuck Colson to you, a man with a guilty past who did genuine crimes and went to prison for it, an experience not just because of prison but because of Christ, a totally changed life that lasted all the rest of his days. Colson wrote something else here. Listen to this. He said, It is not what we do for God that matters, but what our sovereign God chose us to do in and through us. He said, God does not want your successes. He wants us. He wants us. He yearns for us. He yearns to fall upon our neck and welcome us with tears and give us a new life. Because if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All has become new. Thanks be to God. Father, 
It's interesting and fascinating for us to see how you planted symbolic pictures of Christ in things that happened long ago. I think of Joseph wailing, his servants wondering what could be wrong with the master as they heard his tears. And I think of Jesus wailing for Jerusalem that spurned him. Oh, Father, thank you that you gave us such a redeemer, such an intercessor, who didn't simply do a mechanical act for us, but who yearned for those who were destined to be his as he made them his own. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his tears and his agony. Make us new people, changed people, as we walk by faith in him. Amen.